You are Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked On Vikings. It is a special Saturday episode. I am your host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at LukeBraunNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at LockedOnVikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, like Google, Spotify, Himalaya, whatever you like. Or you can just ask your smart device, like Siri, Google Home, Amazon Alexa, play podcast Locked On Vikings. It'll take you right to the most recent episode. You'll have to forgive me, I'm a bit under the weather, so I, I might sound a little gross. But the show must go on, and today we're going to spend most of the show talking about the Saints' offense and how you can possibly slow them down and, and you know, what, what strategies the Vikings could potentially employ to slow down this juggernaut unit that's been white hot coming into this game. But first, a little bit of news. In a shocker, the Vikings put Mike Hughes on IR with a neck injury that he must have sustained over the course of practice the last couple of weeks. They fill that roster spot by signing Marcus Sherrills. Elsewhere in injury news, it looks very optimistic that Eric Kendricks will play in this wildcard game. However, Mackenzie Alexander is also ruled out for the game. So we go back to the configuration that the Vikings employed earlier in the season when both of those players were out with Jaron Curse getting a lot more snaps. Amid swirling rumors of Mike Zimmer being on the hot seat for this playoff game, Mark Wilf issued a statement saying, quote, We value Mike and Rick's leadership, and we have every intent of Mike continuing as the head coach of the Minnesota Vikings and Rick leading our football operations next year and beyond. We'll talk first about the injuries. Of course, the Mike Hughes injury comes as a little bit of a surprise. He was on the injury report all week with a neck injury. That kind of thing can just get aggravated with regular football activities pretty fast. Uh, and, and it's not really something that is wise to try to prevent unless you want to, you know, sit Mike Hughes entirely and have him sit out this game anyways. And with Mackenzie Alexander dealing with an injury as well, we're going to see a whole bunch more Jaron Curse probably in this game. So that presents a couple of different problems, right? One, what do you do at nickel? That's probably just Curse. And I was actually advocating for a little bit more Curse in this game because of Jared Cook. For one, you know, Jared Cook is this really, like, big, bad, matchup nightmare type guy, right? And putting a little short slot corner on him would probably work out as similarly as, as when you put Mike Hughes on, like, Mike Williams against the Chargers and he ate. That also allows you to be in your nickel package but still have a pretty big guy. I mean, Curse could also feasibly play like Will Linebacker, so you can kind of be in both your base and your nickel at the same time, and it makes it a little bit easier, gives you a little bit more flexibility to counter Saints personnel packages. Now, I had been advocating for, like, rotate Curse in more, not just, like, bench the other two and use Curse entirely, which is basically what's going to happen, so it's not ideal, but there's a silver lining. As for the dreaded vote of confidence from the ownership, that is something that kind of happens right before coaches get he get fired all the time. It's also something that happens before coaches don't get fired, so it shouldn't really change your prediction uh, of what's going on here. Precedent aside, though, I do kind of believe the Wilfs. I, I think that they've always been uh, a group that, that values stability and not necessarily a group that's going to turn things over if things aren't very bad. Last time they fired a head coach, that guy was 5-10-1, and one, and his defense had blown like four or five uh, leads in that, that season. That was 2013, and he was supposed to be a defensive coach. As owners, they're definitely not going to be the types that do, you know, extremely reactionary things like a, a Jimmy Haslamwood or, or a Dan Snyder. 
but I don't know. This is kind of a Rorschach test, I feel like, because the, the commentary that I've seen, at least, on this statement, if people believe that Zimmer is going to or should be fired, they say, oh, it doesn't mean anything. It's the dreaded vote of confidence. This always happens. And if they do believe in Zimmer, they say, see, now we can all shut up about it. So I, I think it's kind of a Rorschach test. You're going to see what you want to see in it. And ultimately, it's probably best to just focus on the Saints game and pick up where we left off afterwards. So let's do just that, and let's start talking about the Saints. I mean, they're a 13-3 team. They are defined by their offense. Michael Thomas has over 1,700 yards on the season. He led the league in a whole bunch of metrics, not just the volume stats, but a lot of efficiency metrics as well. And, and of course, Drew Brees is one of the best quarterbacks in the league for the you know 100th year in a row. So let's start there with the scariest thing. So Breeze and Thomas and, and their connection, there was a really good video a couple of weeks ago by Brett Coleman. I'll link that in the show notes that tells you a little bit about uh, Breeze and Thomas and, and their chemistry and kind of what makes them so special this year. Uh, and, and a big part of it is that they have their own uh, pre-snap checks built in, or at least it looks like they do. You can only ever know so much for sure. But it looks like they do, uh, you know, you have the play that is called, and then sometimes if they get a certain look that they want, or they get a certain cornerback leverage that they want, Breeze will recognize this, shoot Michael Thomas a look, and then he knows to run, you know, the slant, or the fade, or or whatever it is, against that leverage, and they're on the same page enough with this that they can afford to do that, and it doesn't screw up with, you know, the rest of what the offensive line is doing, or the other route concepts, or whatever, and Breeze is good enough at, at pre-snap reads, where he's right about this all the time. So how do you counter this? Well, sometimes you can kind of make them play into your hand very well. For example, give uh, Michael Thomas outside leverage and play a little bit off of him, right? You're, you're just begging him to run a slant. And if he runs that slant, maybe you have a zone blitz called where a defensive lineman that Breeze isn't expecting drops into coverage and, and tries to pick it off. That's the kind of trick you can try to pull on, on Drew Breeze. Blitzing Breeze is a little bit of a different mistress. I'll get into that in a little bit. But with Thomas, his combination of adequate at least athleticism, incredible tape study, incredible technique, and incredible chemistry with his quarterback has made him like the most formidable wide receiver in the league, and I don't even think that that's controversial to say this year. And that little bait and switch is something that you can only pull off if A, you hide your actual intentions from Drew Brees, and he's pretty good at sniffing that kind of thing out, and B, you have to execute it perfectly. So it's a really tough thing to pull off. Really, the Vikings will just have to execute, and, and that's a, a difficult thing to ask of guys like Rhodes and Waynes, who haven't had their best seasons, a guy like Curse, who is, I, I like him for who he is, I like him as a rotational player, but as a full-on starting nickel, I, I think that there are flaws there, and ultimately, it's kind of boring analysis, because it's probably something that is difficult to ask for, but those guys just need to step up, that's kind of the long and short of it. So let's talk a little bit about Drew Brees uh, more specifically, and we can go into the rest of their weapons a little later. But Brees has always been a guy, and this has been my perception of him, but I brought this up to Ross Jackson on, on Crossover Wednesday, and he kind of gave me the opposite impression, but I always thought of Drew Brees as a guy that you cannot blitz. And so usually when defenses are doing poorly, we call for more blitzes. We say, why aren't they blitzing? They're playing vanilla, they're getting torched, right? And the reason usually is, I mean, blitz is a, a, a risk-reward thing. You're sending more players than you usually send. That means you have fewer guys in coverage. There's going to be a hole somewhere. You're going to have somebody one-on-one -on -one where they otherwise would have help. And so what do you need to counter a blitz, right? Well, you need to process that there's a blitz very quickly. You need to figure out where the that, that blitz has vacated so you can know exactly where to attack. You have to have a route there. 
and most play calls will have a route through most lanes just because there's, you know, five skill players who usually have something hot built into to every play for if they blitz, and you need to be able to get the ball out quickly. And there might not be another person in the league who is better at those things than Drew Brees. I mean, maybe Tom Brady over the last few years, but for this season especially, it's absolutely Brees is the best at countering that kind of thing. Now, Ross Jackson told me, no, 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 Blitz Brees, that's your only chance. That's, you know, that's what, like, Tennessee did, or at least they got some success blitzing him in the other loss that they took against Atlanta at the Superdome uh, in Week 10. Atlanta had some success with the Blitz, but they didn't use it often. They only blitzed him, like, nine times in that game. They just picked their spots very carefully, and I think that's what you kind of have to do. Now, Zimmer's blitzes in the past have had more success than other blitzes, and it's because Zimmer's blitzes are a little bit more exotic and a little bit more well-disguised than blitzes are for uh, other other teams. He does a particularly good job having Anthony Barr kind of enables this, having a guy like, you know, Daniel Hunter kind of enables this too, but he does a good job of lining things up a certain way, showing them a certain blitz look, and then, uh, you know, kind of disguising what the actual blitz is going to look like, so you slow down that processing, you force Drew Brees to think through more steps in a very, very short amount of time. You just have to make it very difficult. This is why Zimmer's good against uh, rookie quarterbacks, because you present that same challenge to somebody like Daniel Jones, and a lot of times they just crumble. So I'm actually kind of torn on this idea of whether or not the Vikings should blitz Brees a lot. Nobody else seems to really have a lot of success with it, even the teams that have had success with it. It's been very limited, and, and some teams have been absolutely scorched doing it. The the Colts blitzed him 11 or 12 times. He ended up getting like two touchdowns, and he completed like 10 of those passes. But perhaps the Vikings specifically are an exception to this rule because they're just a better blitzing team than those defenses. And that can kind of feed into the thing that I said before about, like, baiting Drew Brees into trying to make hot reads, and if you can figure out what the hot read is going to be, you can either shut it down, pick it off, or otherwise, you know, force him into making a bad decision. Again, this requires perfect execution from a number of players. It's not an easy thing to do. It's never going to be easy going against a Hall of Fame quarterback, but that's the kind of thing you have to do to create disruptive, chaotic plays, and when you're an eight-point dog, that's kind of what you have to resort to. But Michael Thomas isn't the only weapon that Drew Brees has to work with. His other main one lately has been Jared Cook, and and that's been a lot different. You know, they haven't done uh, some of the deep shot stuff with Ted Ginn that we have uh, been used to seeing and when I would preview the Saints in previous iterations, but they've gotten plenty of actual deep production, and that's really because of Jared Cook. He's 6'5", he's 254, he runs 4'5 speed. I mean, that is the classic kind of matchup nightmare. And Jaron Curse has always been the guy that I've talked about as the counter to that, but the Vikings have actually used Anthony Barr a lot. Uh, he's, I mean, he's got the athleticism and the ranginess to cover a guy like that. He has the size to compete on those contested catches. He's a pretty good coverage linebacker, so we might see a little bit of that as well. The Saints also have Taysom Hill, and Taysom Hill is a weird gadget player. He's technically listed as a quarterback. He can step in and, and play weird wildcat stuff. He can also take end arounds. He's also just straight up caught touchdowns as a wide receiver. And whenever he's on the field, you kind of have to keep an eye on him. The Vikings got got really bad last year when uh, the Saints did, I think it was like a flea flicker, it was something to Taysom Hill, and they totally busted the coverage, and Michael Thomas got like a big, long, runaway touchdown. And then, of course, there's Alvin Kamara and our hashtag old friend Latavius Murray and their running game. They have, I mean, don't let that get lost in the shuffle. Of course, Alvin Kamara is this crazy weapon, and Kamara versus it looks like Kendricks. If not, it would be something like Eric Wilson. I'd be a lot more worried about it. Uh, but 
but all this is to say that the Vikings have a lot of weapons to contend with here. There's a lot of stuff to pay attention to. So if you just bracket and double cover Michael Thomas, there's a whole bunch of other ways that the Saints can beat you. And this is, uh, you may be noticing, this is not going to be that optimistic of a podcast. This is the part where the Saints look pretty unbeatable. You got to get lightning quick pressure with four. You got to cover well, and then maybe you have a chance to stop stop Drew Brees from getting uh, the, the ball out of his hands. Now Brees runs like, and and the Saints run like a pretty standard classic West Coast offense, and it's actually like one of the purest ones left in the league from the old like Bill Walsh era of you know the Joe Montana offenses, and it is all very you know get the ball out quick, set up for possible yards after the catch opportunities, but ultimately you're dinking your way down the field seven yards at a time. So if you can come up and make the tackle and, you know, use those those two high safety looks that the Vikings have been really in favor of lately, that's actually better against this kind of, of offense. So schematically, I think the Vikings are in the right spot. It's just a matter of executing against all world players. It's a, a matter of tackling Alvin Kamara. That's not easy. It's a matter of beating Jared Cook on contested catches. That's not easy. And Jared Cook, who used to have a huge drop problem, he has a, he's dropped one pass since he came back from injury in week 10. It's a matter of actually, you know, holding back Michael Thomas, who catches like 13, 14 passes a game. And, and I don't really see a way for the Vikings to stymie that. I just hope that they can come up and make the tackle and prevent it from getting any worse than it always is. Ultimately, I think the Vikings will have like two safeties capping over the top all the time, and they'll be able to have their cornerbacks, you know, stand underneath. And that's the way that they've been playing since the bye week. And you do that, you give up a little more run production, but we've already talked about that a ton. That's always a trade-off that you're willing to take, and it's definitely a trade-off that the Vikings have chosen and are willing to take. The Saints present a really, really difficult puzzle to solve, and I don't envy Mike Zimmer or the position that he's in trying to solve it. Do you blitz him? Do you not blitz him? Do you play off coverage? Do you play press man coverage? Something that Michael Thomas is, like, specifically very, very good at countering. I kind of would love to take a page out of the Patriots book here and the way that Stefan Gilmore plays. He plays a very, very aggressive style. They'll put a safety over the top of Gilmore pretty much no matter where he lines up on the field, and then uh, Gilmore can can press and jump routes and do everything with reckless abandon. I really like that idea, especially when it comes to somebody like Xavier Rhodes, who could be kind of a playmaker. And you could have Trey Waynes, you know, on the backside playing a little bit more conservatively. And, you know, even though Xavier Rhodes has had such, you know, this down year all season, you know, give him an opportunity to fail, as it were, by putting, like, Anthony Harris over the top to go make a tackle and, you know, keep it to an 11-12 yard gain instead of, you know, big, long bust coverage touchdown, and see if he can't, you know, go play angry, go be aggressive and come out for this game and maybe, you know, be a little bit disruptive. But ultimately, what you have to do with a West Coast on for offense is screw up their timing. And that's why press man is typically very good against West Coast. But that's what makes the Saints such a challenging puzzle. You know, the, the things that are good against West Coast, blitzing to disrupt their timing, jamming guys at the line to disrupt their timing, the Saints players themselves are so specifically good at countering. And if the Vikings do end up, you know, finding a way to stymie the Saints and keep them under 30 points in this one, I'll be fascinated to find out how they did it. So I've made a, a lot of hay about, you know, getting pressure on Drew Brees and, and blitzing him. So where do you blitz? Where do you try to get pressure? What is this offensive line? You know, what do they look like? And really, they have unbelievable talent at, at the tackle positions. Ryan Ramchick has had, I think he has had an all-pro season, correct me if I'm wrong there, but he's had a really, really incredible season in the last uh, four games. He's given up just three pressures, and Teron Armstead has given up just seven pressures. They've given up zero sacks off the edge 
in the last four contests, and that means that it's not too much of a weak point. Now, that said, they're going to be on their side saying, you know, okay, Everson Griffin and Daniil Hunter, this is a real test for the tackles, and the tackles are good. That's probably a couple of the better matchups that we could watch all game, and if you're looking for a matchup to kind of key in on, I think Daniil Hunter versus Ryan Ramchek is phenomenal as a matchup. Two young studs going at it. Now, on the interior, things haven't been quite as easy, uh, and part of that is because their actual, their worst lineman this year has been Nick Easton, old friend. He's playing at the guard position, and he's been a little bit of a liability. Now, here's the thing. At guard, a little bit of a liability is not going to be uh, that much of a disruptor, and I mean, obviously, the Saints offense has been white hot despite that, but when you have both guard positions haven't been great for them. They have uh, Larry Warford on the other side who's been meh. Uh, So when you have both guard positions, like, struggling, but you don't have an interior pass rusher, right? This has been a problem for the Vikings all year. What do you do? Well, this is where the blitzing part comes in, right? I'm sending Anthony Barr. I'm going to send, you know, Everson Griffin on a twist, try to get Everson Griffin on the guard instead of getting him on Teron Armstead. Shamar Stefan might not be much of a pass rusher, but he can just, like, crash into the tackle and move him out of the way. That's a much easier job. The problem with this, there's a problem with everything. The problem with this is that a stunt takes a lot longer, and if you're going to run a twist against Drew Brees, he's just going to get the ball out on you. So you really need to get instant pressure, which is why I think that double A gap, I mean, just go back to like 2016 Zimmer, right? Or 2017 Zimmer, which beat the Saints twice. Go back to that, you know, make these guards make difficult decisions and, and try to get some blitzes up the interior. The thing about interior pressure is it hits faster than exterior pressure. So not only do the Saints have two good tackles on the outside, but getting pressure through the tackles isn't as good as getting pressure through the interior. This is where just I just so badly wish they had like a Sheldon Richardson back, but in lieu of that, you can send Barr and Kendricks and shoot even like guys like Eric Wilson or even guys like Jaron Curse, send them up the middle and try to get very, very quick pressure on Drew Brees, because if you can disrupt that timing, then that's when those plays start to fall apart and you can start to stymie them. In the last couple of weeks, Brees actually hasn't been as good under pressure as he usually is, and there might be a pattern here. You might be able to to rattle him if you can get pressure. It's going to be really, really hard. There's not like an easy, you know, oh, just just have uh, Daniil Hunter beat the crap out of somebody's backup right tackle, and then booyah, you win, and there have been games like that where it has been that easy, but if you can do that, that's the first step toward, you know, stymieing Michael Thomas. The one way to stop Michael Thomas is to stop the ball from getting to him in the first place. Now, don't get me wrong, if you do have exterior pressure, that's always going to be good, and yes, that does tend to uh, augment interior pressure, and vice versa, the two complement each other, but in terms of blitz packages, I would much rather go off the interior than have, like, a corner blitz off the edge. Those types of blitzes, they take too long, and they're typically the kind of thing that Drew Brees can counter really, really easily. In terms of stopping the run game, now I think uh, the difficulty that they've had on the interior of their line comes in handy a little bit more, because now you've got two run stuffers, right? So I I actually don't know if they'll have, I mean, I don't think they'll have to, because their pass game, I I don't really see the Vikings stepping up in the way that they have to. Too many players who have had poor seasons will have to suddenly turn it around. Um, I mean, I would love to see it, but if I were guessing, I would say probably not. But in terms of the run game, you know, they'll have to go outside quite a bit, and that means that, you know, since your edge rushers are going to have trouble getting to the quarterback anyways, having them play a little bit more of a set-the-edge game might be, I mean, it might be a little bit easier for them. They won't have to pin, pin their ears back so hard. 
So I feel a lot better about the Vikings' ability to stop Alvin Kamara than I do, you know, their ability to stop Drew Brees. That's probably like a super lukewarm take. Uh, obviously, Drew Brees and Michael Thomas are going to be harder to slow down than a run game. But one thing that that kind of means is that if the Saints do get ahead, there might be some comeback ability here if you can stop that run. And of course, that's something that the Vikings have done three times in the past. They've come back from three score games and had game-winning drive opportunities. They only cashed in one of them, the one against the Broncos. They they uh, failed against the Seahawks and uh, in Lambeau Field in week two, but suffice it to say that, you know, a big giant deficit isn't something that the Vikings, uh, you know, this is the kind of team that can play from behind, which is weird. We're not used to that, but this does really seem like it's the kind of game where a lot of points could be scored very fast and and no large uh, lead will ever be safe. So before we wrap this up, there's a couple things that I want to get to real quick. For one, with the uh, re-signing of of Marcus Sherrill's, this kind of creates a repeat of a really cute moment from the last playoff game, the Miracle game. If you remember in that game, uh, Saints punter Thomas Morstead took a really bad hit on the first punt of the game, and he ended up, I think he actually fractured his ribs, and he gutted it out and finished the rest of the game. And uh, in the wake of the Miracle and all of the good warm fuzzy feelings that were going on in Minnesota, uh, it seemed like Vikings fans actually really took a liking to Morstead. And there, there was a lot of media about him, you know, and saying, wow, you know, what an impressive performance. You really gutted it out. This was great, including Marcus Sherrills, the person who was catching those punts. Well, those two actually kind of became friends over the next year, and they started a whole bunch of really cool charity endeav- endeavors together. I'll, I'll link that uh, in the show notes for you. So now we see Thomas Morstead punt to Marcus Sherrills again, and uh, this will be the, the first time this happened in the playoffs, obviously, since kind of a, a cute buy story in the midst of what has been a very doom and gloom uh, week of, of preparation for Vikings fandom and the Vikings community. The other thing, this is a, a piece of news that broke while I was recording this, uh, so I just wanted to quick hit it at the end. Uh, it does turn out uh, that that Kevin Stefanski will interview for the Carolina Panthers head coaching job sometime in the next week. It kind of depends on if the Vikings win this game. If they lose, uh, obviously that that makes it easy to schedule. But if they do win, uh, the Vikings would actually play the first game of the divisional round uh, in San Francisco. They would play on Saturday, so that would be kind of a short week, and it would make it a little bit more difficult to schedule that interview with Stefanski. But the headline here is that, yeah, the Carolina Panthers are interested, and so the Kevin Stefanski war begins. And and of course, you know, depending on how this game goes, that might complicate things a, a lot more. So that's something that, again, we'll, we'll just kind of have to wait till the end of the game, and we'll deal with that when, when we come to it. Uh, in the meantime, we'll just have to hope that Kevin Stefanski does something against this Saints defense to earn himself a head coach job. That would be pretty cool, at least uh, at least in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the Saints offense is incredible, and slowing them down is going to be really difficult, and I don't think the Vikings defense, uh, are they're, they're not going to be able to hold them under 20, right? Like, that's not going to happen. That's just not who the Saints are. This is going to have to be a track meet. They're going to have to keep up on offense to win this game, and I think there's a reason that they're eight-point dogs. Not only are they on the road playing in a really tough place, that's the Superdome. Although, I, I've, I said in uh, Crossover Wednesday that, you know, it's not really like the worst team to, you know, put in a hostile environment. They've actually been pretty good about avoiding crowd noise related issues on the road. Uh, It's just more that, you know, going to New Orleans is always a difficult thing for any team to do. And going in there and winning is something that only the Atlanta Falcons have done this season. And I mean, you know, divisional games can get weird. So that's not even really evidence either. The Saints are incredible at home and stopping them is going to be hard. I mean, set your expectations right here. This is one of the things with like all of the Mike Zimmer stuff that I've kind of seen is like, well, he 
better win this game. And it's like, what, you better beat the best team in the league in their own house or else like you've already made up your mind if this is the the litmus test by which you're going to judge how things are going in Minnesota. I want them to make a game of it. I don't think that they're going to win. I didn't pick them to win, but I'm going to, you know, I'm I'm, going to sit and, and hope beyond hope anyways. And I hope that in these last two podcasts, I've laid out plausible ways for that to happen, however unlikely they may be. So that's going to do it for this week of Locked on Vikings. Uh, Thank you guys for putting up with a later week. Of course, I had travel plans and it really let me dive into the Saints kind of player by player, which is a really fun thing that I don't always get to do for these. Uh, So thank you guys for putting up with that. Thank you for putting up with my, my, my sick voice. I will see you all on Monday morning after this game. We'll recap it for better or worse, and, and we'll go into that week depending on what happens. We'll, we'll kind of see what happens there. So I will see you all on Monday morning. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. The show is on Twitter at LockedOnVikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, or just ask your smart device to play podcast Locked On Vikings. I will see you all on Monday morning, and as always, Skull.